Starting in 1977, the Enfield poltergeist spent two years tormenting a family in their Brimsden council house, focusing its attention on the two daughters Margaret Hodgson, aged 13, and Janet Hodgson, aged 11. Many, of course, insist that this was nothing more than a hoax, than youthful hijinks. But I find it totally plausible that the outskirts of London are full of teenage girls levitating in their bedrooms and talking in the voices of ghosts. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's most excellent wordsmiths to choose a myth, a folk tale, or a fairy story, or a legend that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters, from nuclear apocalypse, or from just our ability to forget things. What we want to know is what stories they want to leave behind for whatever civilizations or smoking ruins come next. They've rewritten and rejigged these stories, and it's my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, cast out of the Garden of Eden for eating the fruit of the Tree of Knowledge and still pretty confused about most things, and joining me this week to huddle together for warmth on the blasted plains of Not Paradise are Candace Siobhan Walker, Phoebe Stooks, and Kayo Chingonyi. First up, we have Phoebe, who is a writer, a performer, and a former Ledbury Festival young poet in residence. Her debut pamphlet, Gin and Tonic, was shortlisted for the Michael Marks Award. Phoebe, hello. Hi. How are you doing there? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you? (laughs) Great. It is so thrilling to have you in the studio with us. So what story have you chosen? Um, I've chosen uh, the myth of Cassandra, who's a very interesting figure in Greek mythology. She was the daughter of King Priam. She was a high-status woman in her society. Um, She was actually a priestess to the god Apollo, but the story goes that she uh, was sleeping in the temple one night and um, she was sort of propositioned by Apollo. And um, as a result of her refusing him, he cursed her so that she had the gift of prophecy, but she was cursed so that no one would ever believe her. As time went on, she predicted things like the fall of Troy, and she was also considered to be mad. Um, And she kind of has a terrible trajectory. Things just get worse and worse. Eventually, she's murdered. She's brought back as a a concubine by Agamemnon um, and is murdered by his wife, Clytemnestra. Um, I was sort of more interested in her as a figure and as a sort of character rather than following her story because it's just really terrible. <laughs> yeah. and there's not, it's not terribly productive, I think, to rewrite a myth and uh, to keep the, the, all the worst parts of it, but to try and engineer something else. Well, after that, I'm really fascinated to see what you do with the story. So do you want to go on ahead? Thank you. Cassandra, A Journey into the Underworld. One. I know a bad boy when I see one. The problem is I want to cradle their heads in my lap. It's easy to confuse a man with a god, an axe with a gift. Sometimes desire has nothing to do with you. It just gets angled towards your shape. I expect to come to a sticky end. Lately I see myself strangled to death on a velvet banquette. My fishnets ripped and my eyes rolled back to the whites. Shall I work backwards? The man who almost dissolved me found me asleep. Your honour, I was alone when it happened. After, I was alone with my questions. Where did I get these green and yellow flowers at my wrists, or this handful of violets at my throat? Why is my bottom lip swollen? I said no, didn't I? Did I say no? After, I locked myself in the bathroom. There was a strange girl in the mirror, 
Your honour, I think I left her there. The past never stays where you put it. Last week I heard him laughing from the other side of an empty shopping centre. I lost three days. Ever since, I feel it all unravelling. The whole muck of history is coming out of my mouth in ribbons. Two. Hundreds of years ago, I was drowned in a bathtub for exactly the same reasons. A scream lives under my pelvis, lodged since childhood, waiting to be cracked open. Shall I work backwards? I used to walk around in the dark all the time, and while they cried out to me, their hands never touched me. I went wherever I pleased in my silver heels. I could not be caught in their fingers. 3. After, Mad Girl starts driving the bus, and I put my feet up on the dashboard. Mad Girl says, how much for a baseball bat? She says, flat shoes. She says, keys in the knuckles. She says, door locked from the inside. She says, check the wardrobe, check under the bed. Mad Girl says, can you walk me home? Please, can you walk me home? Can you stay on the line while I walk home? Mad Girl says, he is not a god anymore, but I could still become one. She says, he's pretty mouthy for a hallucination. She says, this is my house. She says, are you scared? What are you, a ghost? You don't know shit about being dead. I have been dead. Have you ever sunk your hands into the ashes that were once the house? I have been there. Mad Girl says it wasn't my fault. Mad Girl says it was never my fault. She says it doesn't matter if you believe me. She says I'd chip his name off the granite next to yours with my fingernails if I had to. Mad Girl says half of you wouldn't know a wolf if it had its jaws around your ankle. Mad Girl says wolves come in all shapes and sizes. That's why you set traps. Mad Girl says she's wolf-proof. Ow, ow, ow. Mad Girl says I wouldn't have survived any other time. I would have died of consumption, childbirth, cotton in the lungs, boredom strangled with my own petticoat. They would have had us lobotomized. She says we're lucky. She laughs lucky. Four. Mad Girl says they're going to come here with their torches and pitchforks. They will come here, the lawyers, the questions, the cops, the bastards, they will never stop coming. They will come here, the wives, in defence of their husbands. They will deafen you if you let them. They will pour the molten gold of their wedding rings down your throat if you let them. Do not let them. Five. Her predictions are so sick no one wants to hear them. Who wants to be given a pram smeared with blood and ashes? Your own death tied up in ribbons and cellophane. A bundle of snakes. Always the snakes. Her name is practically a hiss. She said they licked the chambers of her ears open and why should you fear them? She asked. Men have done me worse wrongs than snakes. Madigal is always correct, though she is really heard. She talks and talks. She talks until she screams, until she talks, until she starts again. 6. The jury have some questions for the victim. Did he put his hands straight through you like smoke? Did it snap something in you like thread? Are you carrying it on your back like a whole other person? Is the dead weight of his name sticking in your throat? Do they ask you if you know him? Has he kept you that secret? Are you supposed to have evidence? The embers of your wishes, your nose smashed into a million pieces. Why don't you speak? Why can't you stop speaking? You are deafening us with your screaming. Could you point to where the pain is? Could you tell him he did this? If you saw him, could you run? 
If you saw him, could you run? 7. Watch me. Let me work backwards. This prophecy is the noise I make when kicked. I have come from the dead to pester the living, to show them the ways that they failed me. I'm dancing on snakes, high up on my thunder thighs. I used to be slender as a thought. Now he'd tremble to pass me on the street, as he should. He'd have to cut me in half to lift me up. When my cat brings me dead things, I eat them. I have made murals from my own blood. I have told you the truth. My eyes are the quiet centre of the hurricane. The voice on the other end of the line is his own cry for help. And it says, you have nothing to fear in this world except me. You mentioned that you didn't want to revisit the extraordinary tales of violence visited on Cassandra. You more wanted to explore her as an as a character, as like an archetype, but nonetheless there does seem to be this continual grappling with low-level violence throughout the poem. Is that something you intended? or? Yeah, I think it's funny. People often say to me that my poems are very violent, and I don't think... I don't think that. Maybe that's just where my headspace is at any given moment. I think because her story is one of just continuing knocking down and because it's about sexual violence, I didn't want that to be the trajectory because I don't think it's necessarily helpful. And I think that, like, to some extent, if you are going to rewrite something, you have to do it thoughtfully. So I think what I tried to do, I don't know, I don't know if I've done this successfully, is to write about that subject in a way that somebody could read that without necessarily, like, without sort of horribly graphic imagery or anything like that, so that if you had experienced that, if you were a survivor, you could read it or listen to it without it being a sort of revisiting a traumatic experience. So it's about kind of exploring the things around the violence and the experience of trying to survive it without delving into the sort of the graphic and bodily particulars, because I don't think, I don't find that helpful personally. I'm just kind of interested in the fact that you've you've chosen that silence you've kind of like flipped the central tragedy of Cassandra and been like actually silence is something science is something positive science is maybe where we can find a space of salvation or maybe some comfort away from these very kind of prurient graphic images of of violence visited against women yeah I suppose so I think it's about kind of centering her as a figure rather than the, the the bad things that are done to her kind of thing. So it's about sort of centering a protagonist who has her own sort of set of voices and things going on and that and her experience of surviving trauma and then so centering her rather than the experience. Does that mm. make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes sense because there is this idea, especially when you mention sort of survivorhood and to some extent victimhood in appropriate scare quotes there's there's this collapse of selfhood into trauma you become nothing other than your trauma which is why I find it very interesting that it's very anchored in the detail of quite a contemporary landscape and there does seem to be this continuity between yourself and also other figures who kind of float in and out of the poem by yourself I mean like the poetic voice, I realise that isn't necessarily actually you. Um, and there's this kind of like this interplay sort of thing. Like, is it is it is she is she haunting 
us? Is that is, is Cassandra everywhere? Yeah, I think in a sense, because myths are useful across time, that if you're, I think the the act of revisiting them, I I I like the idea of bringing that into a contemporary context because it's still relevant because she's still a, a figure that uh, that resonates with me particularly. But also when you read about experiences of of of, of when, for example, a uh, unnamed powerful man is is taken down for for sexually assaulting multiple women, there have always been women who've been talking about it for a very long time, and who. Um, who haven't been listened to for whatever reason. And also the, the fact that she was accused of being mad as a way of silencing was something that was interesting to me. Like the concept of like what is what is madness in the context of trauma, what is what is an appropriate reaction in the view of others is, is very interesting. And like, or even like the question of like what is hysteria? Because I think there's a sense of like, there's, there's almost like an idea of like a good survivor and a, and a good way to, to react to it that, that's, that doesn't blame everybody and that isn't angry and that doesn't really do anything. Well, precisely because the logic and the laws that govern what rationality is and what, in a strict kind of, I guess, mathematical sense, truth is, is kind of not just unable to contain and express these things, but also in part responsible for that. There is some kind of... You know, it's something kind of appealing in in the fact that she's that she's labelled mad. You think, well, like, well, yeah, yeah. According to according to this diagnosis that kind of makes periphery all of these sort of responses to trauma that are that are unex- unacceptable. There is a sense in which saying, like, yeah, you can kind of you can kind of reclaim that through the figure of Cassandra. Yeah, and then the idea of like what I wanted to explore with the figure of somebody like Mad Girl is that she is somebody who. Who takes? Who looks after the the person who mm. who's experienced the trauma? I think if we're going to talk about the poetic voice, like that's closer to my poetic voice than the main narrator of the. It's poem. very succinct. <laughs> but yeah, I read an essay the other day. It said, "I'm inside someone who loves me. She would die for me." That just really stuck with me as an idea of like, even if you yourself are not necessarily interested in survival, there is a part of you that is. And that that and continues to sustain you. That's, that's that's so appealing that I find that like ah I find that not quite relatable, but I want that to be relatable. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me about the jury. The jury, I think, is a made up thing in my mind a little bit, but it's a, a kind of constructive. I think that we get a sort of barrage of news when there's a sexual assault, uh, and then so you get the sort of journalistic responses, you get the responses of people on the internet and things like Twitter, and you and then also like. If you experience trauma, you have the imagined responses of people you know and things like that. I think that there is, like, whenever there is something like this happens, there is a, re- a concrete reaction. So it was a kind of pushing together of all of those things, I suppose. But then I think any woman who experiences a trauma is somehow on trial. And I think that Cassandra was a woman on trial for what people thought was a kind of perjury. And in, in the sort of prophesying things that people thought were not true. It, oh, most of the time as well, they were really terrible things. Like the fall of Troy, for example, and she knew knew about the Trojan ho- horse, for example. Which is like the, the big plot point of that whole thing is that she she knew <laughs> that not to allow the Trojan horse in, but was ignored. You do get these instances where... You know, people are like, oh, you know, how could we possibly have known? This is such a shock. And it often it's, it's you know... the millions of women who have known of being like, I 
told you so, but... I mean, you... I didn't want to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and also, this is another thing about her story that I found compelling, is that she, like, she never shuts up all the way through and continues to continues to predict these things and continues to warn people, even though because she has the gift of prophecy, she knows that she's not going to be believed. So it's the, the kind of... this Yeah, a sort of foolish optimism, almost, that is kind of an in a literary figure, sort of appealing and upsetting at the same time. Yeah, there is something heroic in the classical sense about that, in that, you know, struggling despite striving even when you know it's doomed precisely because you know it's doomed, but there's something, you know, she still feels that duty nonetheless to the society, which is kind of, you know, which kind of kicked her out and cursed her and betrayed her and all that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. This kind of and it is kind of a heroic thing in the context of other heroic physical masculine things, and is and is subsumed by those because actually in the in the context of the myths, she's actually a particularly minor character, um, and that's fascinating to me as well. Is that she has such an interesting arc, and yet there isn't like she's mentioned in Agamemnon by Aeschylus, but she's a sort of relatively minor character. She's not the the main figure of that story. To me, she's the most interesting. Yeah. Oh, just by the way, there was someone who knew all along and yeah could have prevented it. Exactly. And uh, there's a long speech where she um she she knows that she predicted her own death before she went to it, and she had to go anyway. And, uh, like that that is sort of a, a fascinating <laughs> to me. This uh, that towards the end she was just like, well, that's that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and there's that kind of finding, I guess maybe dignity in it or like do you do you think that she, she kind of gets anything out of that it I don't think it's a moment of losing hope I think that her story is in some ways in in that context not in the context of what I've written but in her context is about accepting inevitability yeah. of of this she does kind of at that point accept the inevitability of, of her own truth and what's going to happen before then she she fights all the way down really up until that point (laughs) (laughs) inspirational Phoebe thank you so much no worries thank you for having me next up we have Candice Siobhan Walker who is a UK based writer photographer and filmmaker and her poetry has been published in multiple outlets and her poetry film O Digital was shortlisted for Outspoken's 2017 prize for poetry hello hi so what story have you got for us? I'm telling the story of the boo hag, which is a creature from uh, the American South. Um, the boo hag is not like your standard nightmare hag. She doesn't have any skin, but she does give you dreams while you're sleeping, uh, while she eats your breath. and She gives you dreams so that you don't wake up and notice because then she will have to take your skin, presumably killing you. Okay, take it away. Sympathy for wild horses. Boo hags rock. Night's wild horses. We are like that. Heart beating our way into the most human landscapes. Built from cold muscle. We're alive somewhere in those depths. But now we're red. Of course the god of dreams was skinless. Of course we were chosen by the tragedies that found us. Of course we are misinterpreted. By scholars. Anthropologists. Old wives. We don't look like the dreams we carry in our breasts. We sound unlike the harpies, but we are. More sister than tails. Tell me, 
you must have known I was coming. Are you astonished by your own desire, or by my redness, or by how happily I furnish the milk of your sleep? Dream about God, dream about sex, dream that you are unmade and made again in the image of a popular misery. Dream nakedness, everybody laughs. Comes from earth, palms first, gasping out of grief's shallow bed. We're indigenous to trauma and low country, Georgia especially, where we live in endangered wetlands. Disassembled, skinned, we die somewhere, then we're born somewhere else, and we push our way up just like the rest, through bedrock, soil, extinction worse than death. It's no wonder we're not long for the sky, palace of gleaming white things. I was embodied without realising the deep sea earthquake was mine. Somewhere my life was taking place without my consent, a textualist tragedy on which I could gain no purchase. I was clueless about the nature of the world I lived in. It's a party dress, it's fragile, it can be worn. Would you recognise the shape of her, 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 what's riding you? Would the light bulb come on after you start to see the dream she gives you? Dream about ways out, dream childhood, ours shared, dream grief, 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 dream searching, dream that promising serpentine glow. How we were weakness corporeal, just as raw and unempathetic as cargo trains toward unravelling western frontiers. We passed the ordinary wonders, grazing cows, wide plains, rivers travelling the same native way, but we can only feed on our own visions. We put the past up with the stars, we multiply, bury futures and wait for something green, green, green. We lose numbers, we relearn intimacy without faces, we separate and rejoin. Everyone has her relatives, her lovers and ex-boyfriends to visit, to dream, to ride. We map by the sky that threw us down but now shows us where to go. I come to you willing, skeletally willing to take whatever you're offering. My devotion is a rough jade. We'll make homes in even the smallest bone of want. Dream violence, dream oranges, dream all kinds of fruit. Forgiveness as burning pine forests. Dream regrowing in spring. We're caught out with old broomsticks. Salt, spilled dry rice, clear night on metal beads, all the usual tricks. Here the door painted haint blue. We're stupid enough to mistake colour for water, which we can't cross. We fail, we're stopped, we die as we're born. Earth, earth, earth. Dream straw, dream death by counting, dream salt in your skin, daylight burning between your reflection and your blue veins. You must see us sometimes, crawling back to places we died first, but we persist. To be seen, we're compelled to act as the architects of dreams. I look into glass and see only glass. Where can we find ourselves, save in the nightmares we ride into others? Did you believe... Wrongly, an invitation would keep me away. Without securities, I moth my way in via keyhole, via lacuna in the rotted green siding. You wake breathless because it's you I came for, but everybody else we dislike for their sweet breath, that wicked candy absence of fear, just a sip. Dream cold showers, dream bruises, dream weaknesses, your mother's palm flat against your skin, hot where it rises. Dream resist, resist, resist.
Whatever skin I'm wearing wears out, and I must have a new one, galloping through the salt marshes till I find a smoking roof, a lullaby, travelling dreamer to dreamer, but such peaceful sleepers, none wake. Cheating makes the skin wear faster, so I wait, the next night and next, hugging my amaranthine chest to my raw red knees. I wait for sundown, wait for a fighter, weeks, years. Get it? This is how long it took me to arrive at you. We are ventricles for each other's yellow walls. We're as absolute as the island's moving beaches, shifting down coastlines with centuries of tides. We survived, remember. Everything else becomes nothing. Dream electricity, dream hunger. Dream about mirrors, about your god. Dream hooves, burning pine, the sea violent and pregnant with a storm. Slow, all fours, the world as you knew it coming apart at the seams. It was the same for me, but haven't we found in each other something shimmering? Kin? Your wrists purpled, my lips swollen, the geography of our infant state. With day clean, we'll embrace being skinless. What do I want you to say? Say rest, say kumbaya, say relieve all your soft vulnerables into the moon of my lap. Clouds of our skin rising away from the spinning wheel, out the window where shadows lapse over the city, what was once ours, what is power without power, or wait in the magic of our own unspooling, wondering now, what dawn is this? So what drew you to the figure of the Buhag. My father's family are from Georgia, one of the sea islands off the coast, Sapelo Island. So growing up, my mum made sure I knew about her Jamaican family and my father's um, Gullah Geechee family. Um, so I kind of grew up with the Buhag and also being a weird kind of bookish kid, I was really into like hags. That seemed like a pretty cool mythical monster to be. Um, but the Buhag doesn't get that much analysis so uh, as much as some of the other hags. So I kind of wanted to write into that character and understand the boo hag as an animal, which we all are, and also like as a person, like the boo hag has this kind of like a vampire, this um, compulsion to feed on people's breath or their essence. Um, and I wanted to explore what that would be like to be this kind of person on the edge of society who's compelled to do something and also explore how someone becomes a boohag because it's generally accepted that boohags are people or were once people. Um, they're some kind of haint or spirit, but there isn't really much about how someone becomes a boohag. You don't get bitten, like, um, you don't have to, like drink a whale's blood on a full moon um so I want to kind of like create that part of the myth there's something very interesting about the dynamic in your poem between this sense of being an edgeland and being beyond society and at the same time being very intimately domestic particularly that action of feeding on someone's breath there's, there's something almost kind of almost erotic about that yeah I think um with 
all hags, but especially with the boo hag because she doesn't have skin. Like it's called riding, like the boo hag's riding you. So if someone wakes up breathless, someone might say in the South, like, oh, the boo hag was riding you last night. So there is like very, it's not even subtle. It's like sexual overtones to the whole myth. And it's interesting that you say, um, or that you kind of picked up on the domesticity um, but the kind of marginalization at the same time, which is, I guess, a reflection of the geography of the, the sea islands, of barrier islands, so they kind of protect the mainland from adverse weather. Um, and the African-American populations there are a specific ethnicity because they were just enough removed from the mainland that it wasn't economically viable to move them over, so they developed their own culture. And so there is that sense of being on the very edge because you're literally on the edge of the state, but also the very small islands. Now Sapelo has less than 80 full-time residents. So there's like, everyone knows everyone else. And with the hag, she's, well, the hag's always female. So there is that idea that she, um, the things that can stop her are very like domestic things. Like you spill some rice and she's compelled to count each grain. <laughs> so if you spill enough, like hopefully, uh, then in the, in the morning she gets trapped outside of her skin um so you can like stop her with like a broom so it's like the kind of like very like common trappings of like stereotypical femininity especially like domestic life in the south uh that are the weapons you can use against her it's funny there does seem to be this mirroring going on was between the you know the central question of you know, what it takes to survive in in this borderland that you've been uh, to which you've been marginalised and there aren't that many resources and the mainland society has kind of abandoned you there and you're literally doing the job of protecting protecting the mainland right and so what does it take to survive under those circumstances and often the question is you know these basic tasks of domesticity of, of caring that is, a, that is the work that really creates life but at the same time that's kind of also the question that the boohag is asking right who is a figure who's double marginalized yeah so with well with my boohag I kind of I mean she can't she can't do any of the the normal things because she can't go out during the daytime uh, without someone else's skin on so I I tried to explore a community of boohags because I kind of just assumed animals look for other animals we look for people who are like us um so I imagined a community of boohags all kind of doing their own thing but finding solace or uh, a kind of reconciliation in each other's company um and forming that kind of like family in the margins um and then that the, that became very much central to what the poem was about or the, the driving force behind the, behind the boohag was that she was looking for someone and bringing more people into the fold and finding more people who were already marginalised but who um, didn't know there was, like, a space for them out there. So it's like the fear-mongering surrounding the boohag is almost something that's preventing this community of the marginalised from from coalescing, right? It's kind of a perverse sort of cautionary tale. Yeah, especially in the sense that um, in the South, a lot of the, like, haints and 
demons that I would read about growing up were, they're all quite sad. And it's always like, if you if you walk through a warm, a uh, cold, cold patch of air, because the South is usually warm, then there's a haint there. And it's like, you want to walk around it. You don't want to go into the forest at night because there's a plat eye. You don't want to do this or this because like you're going to encounter some kind of ghost. But all the ghosts seem to be like quite sad entities, like lost spirits of former slaves or um, or like children without mothers or like women without skin. Um, and so that kind of begs the question, like, why isn't there more sympathy for them in the myth? Although in the in the Southern culture, there is kind of like, it's more, you just avoid the saints because you avoid demons. <laughs> but they just, they can't help it. Like, it, the ghosts are ghosts. So I wanted to explore more that um, a ghost a ghost and what does a ghost do when, like, we're not around. There's an interesting parallel there between the supernatural and the very animalistic and the human kind of the question of the human is sort of suspended really that the human community is not the one that is under interrogation here it's about how the you know how the super how we can best understand the supernatural by understanding it as animal but by writing it like that there is something as you say incredibly sympathetic and incredibly compelling about the figure of of the boohag, particularly in the context of, as you point out, it cropping up in an area and the people who've experienced just, you know, unspeakable levels of trauma that seem to be just kind of wrangled out via these kinds of myths. I also wanted to draw a parallel between the boohag as a supernatural, like a marginalised supernatural figure, um, and women who are seen as undesirable within society and often I found in my few years here that women find solace and company and support with other women who may not have experienced the same traumas as them or who have not even had the same like life experiences as them but they still find ways to make these spaces in which everyone's all different kinds of people are welcome and different kinds of narratives are welcome around desire just generally in the way that women get pushed to the margins i mean any kind of woman really but um women especially women who experience multiple marginalizations mm. then the only way they can find a space is to find other women and then together carve out that space and carve out those niches where they're safe to just be or talk about their lives. So they can build communities without too much external scrutiny, um, especially from those that would oppress them or that would attempt to use their labour for not their own benefit. Think about what it is to go around with no skin and to be like totally vulnerable to, and to have like you know all of the world's you know hurts visited upon you like doubly, triply, quadruply. Like you think like I I kind of I probably be after a replacement skin. Yeah, I've revisited some of my old notes and essays on Frankenstein from way back when. That was something that always interested me. It was like think about how it feels to be this guy. Think about how it feels to have no skin. Like you can't even walk around your own house without getting like lint in your body. Like that's gross and just like a horrible but like everyday thing the boohag experiences 
it interested me in the way that kind of mirrors the experience of trauma, especially the immediate experience of trauma, where, like, it's always around you. It's like you're wearing it all the time. Um, so, like, making a cup of tea is suddenly, like, also trauma. Get, have, running a bath is also, like, very stressful. Um, but from the outside, it's often vilified, um, where other people become almost disgusted or they're afraid that you're going to rub off on them. Yeah, I just really wanted to give a voice to something that uh, that is usually spoken around something and usually spoken around in a way where it's how can you avoid this how can you avoid the boo hag or stop her from stealing her skin not maybe the boo hag has a really good reason why she wants to steal your skin because the sun is burning her she must get a terrible sunburn (laughs) candice thank you so much and next we have kaya chingani who is a poet the poetry editor of The White Review, a fellow of the Complete Works programme and the author of three highly acclaimed books of poetry. The latest, his first full-length collection entitled Kumakanda, bagged him the Geoffrey Deermer Prize. Hello, Kayo. Hello. So what story have you chosen for us today? I've chosen a river god myth from the Zambezi um, tribes, uh, particularly in Zambia, um, the Tonga people. It's... The, the river god is called Nyami Nyami. Um, and it's this idea of a, of a god who's part fish, part snake, who has a kind of dominion over uh, the river. Brilliant. I'd love to hear it. Nyami Nyami. In a country named for its river, where the river is wide and its flow gives life to those who live on its banks. In a valley where the people and the river lived in accord for generations woven as hair in a braid, is woven. In such a place, our story begins. Half a lifetime ago, before the Moncton Commission, when people burned their chitupas in front of the offices of district commissioners, before a blood condition passed through the population, as flame passes through a forest, before load shedding, hours of power cuts, the national grid sold off to the highest bidder. Before the country was booming from copper and the roads were full of American cars and the salesmen plied their trade with sweet nothings, weaving through the traffic to make their entreaties. My friend, you must hurry up and catch this Mustang before it gallops away. Before potholes and roads unfinished through lack of investment, before imported knockoffs the goods trains and trucks, before the valley was connected by the orderly topography of Macadam and the valley's foot-worn pathways, taught to the valley's young by experience, were paved. The valley people lived in a relative peace. Livingston was by then long dead and the people were free to bide after their own fashion giving honour to the god of the river, and in return for their supplication, receiving blessings in the form of fish, which were so plentiful that to a child who did not like fish, a parent would say, my darling, here there is fish, or there is fish, 
and the child would remember the legacy, knitted into the songs they had known all their lives, of fisher folk who could swim before they could walk or talk, because the river god would never let them sink. The river god, like many gods, is a vengeful god, but who would not want vengeance, separated from their lover by the insistence of machinery, the promise of copper, the future open to those brave enough to take it, always this human need for taking. The river god remembers what is forgotten between generations, slavers raided in the name of this self-same progress. And who was it through all of this who provided and... No man, nothing so inflexible as that. But this god, part serpent, though don't believe what they tell you about serpents, part fish, able to swim and be one with water, holding water in a flowing order no man-made machine could conjure. Though the strangers who came with their ideas of order their instruments and blueprints. Those strangers brought with them a plan to build a dam, harness the river's power to bolster the power of man. And what did it matter to them, dishonouring a god in whom they didn't believe? For those who believed, the dam was no boon. They knew no human hand could bend the landscape to the ends of capital, without consequence. And so they offered prayers and bade their kinfolk agree to nothing, sign nothing, refuse the handshakes that to these strangers constitute contracts. And though believers feared the gods' wrath, the dam was built, the strangers executed their plan. And what did it matter that the skies brought forth unprecedented rain, a mere trifle, and those swept away were unlucky. But what had that to do with the dam which would bring about such prosperity in this land? Believers knew the waters raged in the river god's name, that in the quest for progress we often make mistakes, make beds in which our descendants sleep badly, in our haste to acquire, to own, to feed, a monster which cannot be sated, for all you fill with minerals its waiting, capacious mouth. Water can crash, and water can flow, Bruce Lee. Who gave them license to live here? Who brought them succour, refuge? What gave them the right to come between this centuries-old love? What do they know of love who have not loved outside human time? This wall they built, in all their wisdom, can only delay our reunion. Those who know water know eventually water will pass through even the smallest gap in what appears to the human eye to be a solid mass. It is said that after the concrete, after the rain, 
after the valley shifted from its old ways, all that remained of Nyami Nyami was a small statue marking the place, a fish-headed snake, a caption consigning the river god to the realm of legend as if all this water flowed here by some accident, as if the old ways were only stories. But to this day, pilgrims sometimes see a momentary swell in the course of the river, and those who recognize these eddies know this to be Nyami Nyami, testing the limits of human ingenuity, calling out to a lover who is constant as the motion of water. You approach the tension between history and mythology um, straight off the bat by reframing a country that very much really exists in very familiar mythological storytelling language in a land named for its river. Which makes me ask the question, what was the virtues of that kind of framework of understanding when we're approaching these sorts of histories? I think there is, there is power in reframing certain narratives, particularly of the African continent generally, but to be specific about African countries and their particular histories, mythologies, and I suppose legends, those kinds of those kinds of stories I'm always drawn to, the very specific ones. The ones that maybe recur across different cultures and have different kind of quirks, depending on the place. Um, so when, when I was coming to this, I was thinking very specifically about the Zambia I was born in and lived in for the first kind of six years of my life and trying to make sense of that in the context of my life, being mostly lived in the UK and being somebody who exists in the English language in that way. So the symbolism of this particular story moved me because it has so many separations and distances in it, and also this kind of hybrid figure of the river god. In the sense of using mythology as a way of returning to a lost homeland is very much something that's animated in the poem as well, because that is key to the drama of the battle between machinery and between the natural landscape there is this incredible sense of of loss there there's this incredible sense of nostalgia almost and there is this almost a, a reification that is necessary in the process of nostalgia that m forces us to question whether these whether these homes and whether these sort of unreconstructed sort of pre-lapsarian territories that we're that we're writing about um i really existed or, or whether it perhaps it matters whether they really existed i'm always interested um in that territory which is somewhere between memory and actuality whereby there's a fictionalizing process whenever you remember anything and particularly when you remember somewhere you've left um and somewhere that you that you love, there's this romanticizing that you enter into. And I suppose the piece is a way of of exploring how, how that romanticizing of the rural, of the pastoral plays against that that tension with everything that machinery and mechanization represents. 
And I think the, the thing I'm centrally concerned with in thinking about mechanization in the context of the African continent is the way in which human life was a part of that mechanization process. And I think globally that, that is also true in terms of the people that were relied upon to build the kind of industry and lifestyles that we see and live in now. And I suppose exploring this story was a way was a way of exploring some of the central tensions of, of, of being someone who left Zambia at that particular time and being someone who had to do my own searching to find some of these stories because these weren't stories I was exposed to at school or through the library or through any kind of coverage in this country. And I think writing is a wonderful way to find out new stuff, either because you have to invent it or because you have to go and look up you have to go and check your assumption that you've made when you invent something and look up something and then it leads you down all of these kind of pathways that you never wouldn't never would have stumbled upon uh, in another way so writing it was a way of really reflecting on some of those questions that you that you raised and even though the you know nostalgia gets a bit of a bad rap particularly in uh, writing as a sort of process of self-discovery because it's it can be painted as overly saccharine or, or sentimental but when you think of actually forces that were amassed to extract everything they could from the land to turn people into resources and commodities that actually nostalgia is something radical because it's it's a counterweight to the force of of dehumanization almost mm. i think I think there's something about idealization which allows for an alternate view of reality. Um, and I think it is important to have a nuanced view of history and actuality and things that happened and to explore those in their depth and ask questions about those events. But I also think in order for healing to occur, we have to imagine different realities, different possibilities. And it might be that we can't enter into those possibilities now but I think in imagining them, in our minds being open to them, then I think that shifts slightly our perspective and the ways in which we enter into some of these questions. For me, existing in a way that is hybrid, which draws on a number of different subjectivities, has allowed me the kind of freedom I didn't know was possible before I, I read work that was exploring those kinds of hybrid multiplicities. What kind of works? I'm thinking in particular about the poetry that has been written by black British writers like, say, Malika Booker or Jacob Sam LaRose, who were coming out of a particularly cross-cultural, cross-disciplinary mode of writing and literary practice. Um, I think about how Jacob Sam LaRose in his pamphlet Communion writes about jungle um, and the subcultures of the club and he's very specific about a particular moment in time in a way that, that made me think about the specificities of my moment in time. And then I think about the ways that Malaika Booker draws on, draws on the kinds of experiments that have happened with the English language, explores what the Caribbean consciousness, the Caribbean affinity with a hybrid mode has done to English. And I'm really moved by that. And so when reading that work, when seeing these poets perform, it gave me a kind of permission to be as weird as I find myself to be in my own head. <laughs>
there's a wonderful emotional hybridity there that's mirrored in it's like the hybridity of language and the hybridity of the actual body of the river god but there's also a sense in which you play with the ideas ideas of anger and ideas of violence almost like exploring the tensions of that there is a difficulty in in writing from a space of anger because the writing can be or can feel like like a catharsis and I think that's an important process that we have to go through um, but as I say if if you explore some of the other nuances of anger then there's also the kind of the valid questions that are raised by people when they when they express from anger which because they're expressing from anger are sometimes lost those questions so I suppose those are questions I hold on to sometimes in my work there was a moment in my writing where those were only expressed in a certain kind of poem which had a certain kind of like political standpoint and everything was kind of neatly wrapped up in a way and now I explore those questions through kind of pushing and challenging myself in terms of the form and the style and the matter of the, po the poem or the, the piece of writing. Reading the poem, it reminded me of your poem, Fisherman's Song. Hmm. And there is the idea that there is something that incredibly, incredibly seductive and about the landscape of it and the way that it's presented and the cadence and the music of the language sort of lulls you and brings you along with it and it's only after the poem is finished you step back and you're like it's you know, there is this grief and anger that only comes as a sort of epiphenomenon of the poem you look at the poem and it's not anywhere it's not anywhere and you can't touch it or feel it but it just it just hits you afterwards i'm really moved by the power of suggestion in writing mm -hmm. and also the suggestive qualities of sound the the way a word's sounds embody and enact a particular mood or experience so I'm, I'm i'm really moved by writers who can do that and i think i try to do that and sometimes sometimes it works and when it works it's because i've been trying to trying to focus on the co-authorship process by which a reader or a listener or somebody who experiences the poem by which that poem becomes theirs as well as mine. The making of books has really taught me that books are for readers as much as writers love them and I'm so moved to have books. There's also this... I don't want to say responsibility, but there's this need for me to remember the reader or the audience and if I'm doing that then I have to give them something, something to do, I suppose, or I have not to assume that they that they don't know the things that I'm going to talk about. And I think if I assume that knowledge in the reader, there's, there's a kind of parity in the, in the nature of the way communication is exchanged. And to me, that's a really generative space to write from. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this week on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. You can catch up on all our episodes, find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. To keep up with all our work, you can follow at goodbyeworldpod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs>